Welcome to another Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. I'm feeling enthusiastic given that we're closing out the year. Very, very close. Can almost taste it. Uh, actually, I'm tasting a lot of smoke in the air rather than tasting the end of the year, unfortunately. But joining me, as always, is Nick Healy. Nick, how are you? I'm good, and it is wild to me that I am tasting the same smoke as you, given the distances between us. It is ridiculous at the moment, right across New South Wales. It's um, it's it's borderline criminal. Just going to throw that one out there. Yeah, yeah. When we're talking about millions of hectares, it's like it, stuff can hit a scale where. It becomes it becomes unfathomable. Like it is truly difficult to comprehend. And I was saying earlier today, one of my biggest issues right now is that I think the media is normalizing this smoke issue right now because I think we should be hearing more about the health implications in the same way that we hear a lot about, you know, people who are in the fire, uh, you know, in the fire zones, the things that they need to do to prepare. We should be hearing more about just how dangerous this is and that people should be taking more efforts to protect their lungs. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's a really interesting one as well. As you say, it is being normalized a little bit. We've got that kind of, oh, well, it's smoky again today. Um, I have been keeping a huge watch on the air quality index. There is a rural air quality index that in New South Wales comes from Department of Primary Industries. Some of that data is shocking. Not to level Sydney was on those big days everyone's talking about, and maybe we should backtrack a little bit. If you're not in New South Wales, if you're not in Australia, you might not know most of the state's on fire and the rest of the state that isn't on fire is covered in a pall of smoke. Hooray. Well, yeah, and if you think of the percentage of the state that can be on fire, most of it is on fire. That's kind of the, that's the weird context. Everything that is a forest um, <laughs> is pretty much the zones that have been doing you know a shocking burn up. It's really really quite scary. And on 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 today, the day we are recording this, we are looking down the barrel of the RFS, the Rural Fire Service, instituting a four day total fire ban right across the state. Something they never do. Total fire bans yeah. are done day by day, four days. And that's been today's episode of Burnside. <laughs> That's right. Um, Spelt B-Y-R-N-E side, um, something like that. Uh, look, yeah, I'm Seamus Byrne. Uh, this is Nick Ely. Uh, we are here to talk tech and games and digital culture stuff. Nick, I wanted to start from um, some of the things that we saw at the Game Awards last week. Um, this is, I have a little write-up of my top five, oh, top ten sort of moments and reveals from that event last week. It's actually a little post that is on biteside.com, um, trailers and things like that, because they have done a magic job of turning the Game Awards into essentially, you know, a product placement fest. Um, but get the games industry, it's like fans like that. I don't like, I think it's, we can be cynical about advertising, but it is true that in an industry where we just love seeing cool new things, that having a, you know, an epic event where lots of companies show off cool new videos and it isn't E3, uh, is actually a kind of cool thing in its own way. Um, but I know that the biggest reveal of the show was definitely learning a lot more about 
uh, Microsoft's next Xbox, correct? I guess um, what surprised me was even that there was an Xbox Series X. I'm not usually so far out of the loop that I don't even know uh, <laughs> that there's something on the horizon or about to be even announced, especially when it comes to consoles, which is my jam. Um, I was a little so you shocked. you missed the whole Project Scarlet sort of No, I knew about discussion that. Discussion that started, yeah. I kind of figured it was years down the track. I think maybe everything's <laughs> yeah, happening yeah, too yeah, quickly. Uh, hilarious given that... um. Uh, I went back and looked at some of the videos we'd been doing back at CNET around uh, Xbox, the, the the most recent one, the one we're all using now, and, and realizing that that was so many years ago, it's not even funny. It feels like it was just a year or two ago. But it's always interesting when certain new console comes out because I I think of them as evolutionary leaps in terms of hardware and platform, and they haven't been for some time now. And I think even the naming of it, Xbox Series X, lets you know that they're really still going a bit iterative. Do you do you agree? Do you think this is not giving us that that quantum leap that we're kind of really used to when it comes to new hardware? Yeah. And look, I think they've definitely been trying to frame the idea that this game is going sorry, this machine is going to be able to do vastly sort of better and different things with the games that you play on it. Um, like one feature that, you know, I think is really interesting is the idea that you'll be able to essentially pause. So, you know, they'll be saving, of course, that's normal. But the idea that more than one game will be able to uh, be saved in like this kind of pause state so that, you could like pick up and resume any of a number of games uh, that you're sort of midstream on. So instead of that idea that, you know, particularly now on Xbox One, that, you know, if you launch a different game, then some other game that, you know, that it does sort of switch things in memory right now, but that's only if you're like going to watch Netflix and then the game is sort of sitting there in the background. But the second, a second game, arrives it has to kick the other one out of its memory so they're trying to say that there's all these kinds of features but i do think that the name really gives away the idea that that they don't want to have to keep coming up with fancy new marketing names which xbox has never been good at that's really something we need to get out of the way after the first xbox and xbox it's a, it's a fine name for a console <laughs> but then you know, ah, oh, they had to catch up to the PlayStation 3, so they named the second one the 360, so it still had a 3 in the name, uh, you know, and then they just launched themselves into a crazy sequence of having to make up other things. And, of course, where do we go after 360? Oh, now let's go one, because, like, the, it's the one or something. And But then it wasn't the one. It was the one and then the one S and then the one X. Uh, and now the one uh, S with digital only. Uh, and, and and now and, we're getting Series and, X, which is going to have clearly Series X, S, T, Y, everything. It's going to have everything. But I, this is... What you just sort of said then is really interesting to me because I am, I'm right now looking at an article written by me, May 22, 2013, which is terrifying. That's how long ago yeah. the Xbox One came out. And it's mostly talking about the hardware. It's mostly talking about, you know, what's going to happen with the processor, what the RAM's going to look like, what's the architecture, what's the drive. No one's been talking about that. If you, if to a casual viewer as I am now, no one's talking about that with the Series X. No one's letting me know what the gigaflop count's going to be or anything like that. It seems like we have evolved past that. And that is really interesting because to me, that is the first console where we didn't get hooked up in those numbers, in that data 
the way we have traditionally. And it tells me that we are using these in a vastly and fundamentally different way to how we've used every console beforehand. It's a, that's a really good point. And I, it does in some ways feel like part of that is that we're, you know, we're at a point where everything can do HD quality stuff mm. really nicely. And it's like, well, you know, faster, okay, you might be able to render some stuff that's a bit more realistic. But most game developers have also moved beyond the idea of just chasing realism, you know, and they're embracing artistic flair and, you know, cool color styles and graphical styles for their games so that it isn't just about chasing realism anymore, which I think, you know, like the fact that one of the biggest games of the year, Untitled Goose Game, is, you know, utterly about <laughs> being this beautiful palette of, you know, of just pleasant colors, um, I think is a pretty good sort of, you know, uh, element that speaks to that. So what does it mean, do you think, for the PlayStation 5? Are they going to follow a similar path or are they going to hook themselves back into here's what we're offering in terms of raw power? Um, okay, so I'm not going to – I I have very good insight. I cannot say where from. <laughs> but I have heard that the PlayStation 5 is mind-blowingly powerful. Okay. And that it really is going to – lay waste to next generation Xbox when it comes to pure power. And in that context, it probably then makes more sense if Xbox really is sort of selling itself in a slightly different way and selling, you know, a whole different thought around what the next generation of consoles are about. I also read an Engadget story that actually said that Xbox Series X um, being, you know, named what it is, that actually that it is the name of the high-end next-generation version, and that actually the there will be a line of next-gen Xbox, which is just going to be called Xbox. Oh, boy. Oh, oh way to make that confusing. <laughs> oh, Lordy. And here's the one other thing, though, that I have heard about next-gen Xbox is that apparently one of the, the pictures they have is that it will play games from all generations of Xbox. So that is an interesting thought ongoing. We just call it Xbox and maybe they're like, you know what, for the next 10 years at least, let's just make it play all the things. I had heard that too and I was pretty excited about that. I've got to say, um, going into Xbox Game Pass the way I have, I'm playing a lot of older titles and really enjoying that. So I think there's a real good movement for that. Before we knew the name, though, one of the great rumours that I remember seeing on social media was that it was going to be named um, to to indicate the way you will be using it. And one of the great jokes was just call it the Xbox Netflix. <laughs> That's the Series N, uh, Nick. That'll be the Series N. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> All right. I actually wanted to talk about, um, because this past week, I have caught up on Watchmen, Nick, oh, in order. Oh. So I got to watch it as it was airing in real time on Monday uh, and close out the series at the same time as everybody else. And it was spectacular, absolutely spectacular. It, it, it is the best TV I've seen in the past 10 years. I know I keep ranting about that, but it was remarkable storytelling. And I have to say, I'm actually hoping that Damon Lindelof has enough Lindelof has enough creative control to say no more seasons. I would love to see it as a single bit of storytelling. Yeah. Um 
And yeah, look, and I don't want to get into spoilers because there is definitely that element that I've realized as well. Where it's on Foxtel locally. And so it does mean that a lot of people have mm-hmm. not been able to watch it without jumping through other hoops and, you know, slash other means to try to get their hands on it. But a lot of people are now sort of going, ah, oh, well, I'm looking forward to it when I get the chance to watch it. Um, but yeah, I felt like the way it sort of tied itself off at the end, um, it's the, it was the right kind of, you know, when we were talking beforehand about, you know, how things might end, um, I, I, it really felt like it was kind of a beautiful way to technically doors are open, but it doesn't need to ever explain anything again. It would just be lovely. There is a great interview with Lindelof where he, um, I think it was Hollywood reporter maybe. And he, um, he actually goes into exactly what he feels. There is a very clear answer to what happens next. uh, And he feels very comfortable with what he would, what the next part of the story is that he would be telling. Um, But yeah, it's, I, I, I just really, really enjoyed it. And part of me does actually feel like exactly what you were talking about earlier, where I really felt like I was way too tired when I watched the very first episode and it was too much. But there were some of those episodes during my catch-up where I really felt like it would have been lovely to let that moment, that episode sort of just float in my brain for a few days, you know, before I got to watch the next episode. It is also television that you cannot take your eyes away from. Every time you were looking at it, and I haven't rewatched it, but even just staring at a scene for a bit, I'd, my eyes had flicked to new elements that I was spotting, new concordances, new mm. patterns. It is not TV that you can have just playing loudly in the background while you hit the fridge to grab another can of whatever. You have to be glued to it. And to me... That is what peak television should be. It's not your background noise. It's not your background entertainment. You're not trying to get something in the kitchen. You're not cooking while it's on. You're not even ironing in front of the TV. You are sitting on that couch, wrapped and unable to move. Yeah, look, it's such a good way to think about it, that it was like, you know, a nine-hour cinema experience, you know, that was just broken up (laughs) over a series of of, uh, parts because... You're right, like this was like the best of cinema. And I think, um, yeah, there are so many sort of issues. I know we're going to sort of get into it, but um, it really sort of was so well presented. And it is such a good point that there is so much television that is still considered good and, and thoroughly enjoyable, but that it is about that idea that, well, you can sort of just watch it while you're doing things around the house or that, you know, you can have your device on your lap and just be distracted, but this deserved to, yeah, to completely draw you in. And I'm very excited to actually watch it again. Um, Cause yeah, Sally just wasn't able to keep up with me while I was sort of getting, <laughs> getting through it because I wanted to be there for the end. Um, but yeah, part of me was like going, the more I got into it, the more I was like, I'm going to get so much value out of the second viewing. Um, and by the end, I'm completely committed to that idea that there is going to be such pleasure in in discovering all the different sort of things that were going on before I'd before I learned through the series uh, exactly what was happening next. I think 2020 Nick needs to rewatch it. I'm not going to try and do it before the end of the year or anything <laughs> like that. So I asked on uh on Twitter uh for just a general call out because it really did make me feel like, you know, what are some of the greatest single season TV shows of all time. Um, and most of the feedback I got really speaks to the issue. And this is why I totally agree with you that I would love Watchmen to just stop 
because almost everything that is considered that kind of a great experience, it's because it was cancelled. And it's because, you know, it might have wrapped up nicely, but for so many people, their favourite shows are ones that, you know, died before their time, but they still ended up having one great season, whereas it would be wonderful to have a show that just gets to stop because it wanted to stop. Well, my favourite TV show, my favourite one-season TV show, it did not get a chance to stop because it wanted to stop. It was one of the ones cruelly, cruelly cut down in its prime, and that would be Terriers. And I've got to admit, they knew that the, uh, the, the cancellation was coming, and they were incredibly careful to give an ending that really genuinely reminded me of the ending of Watchmen. There is an ambiguity to it. Sorry, Damon, I don't agree that it is a completely clear ending. There is an ambiguity to the ending of Terriers from 2010 that I think makes it perfect one season watching. You do, you, you can watch it and feel like a story was told. Yeah. No, that's, it's just brilliant. I think, um, what was the other thing? The, oh, yeah. So I might, I'll flag a couple of the shows. Though, you know, my computer's managed to go, I'm just going to reload your mentions yeah, after sure. you've gone to the effort of like pulling up the, uh, all the replies to the thread. Um, probably the most common reply was Firefly. Oh, I'd actually even forgotten about that. That's really bad. Sorry. <laughs> Apologies. Um, but yeah, a lot of people sort of mentioned that. Um, probably one of my favorites. Um, actually, no, I'll, I'll skip that one for now. A lot of people mentioned some series that, um, you know, the joke being that they pretend that there were no further seasons. So Heroes, <laughs> which I really do agree that if it had just stopped at the end of season one, you know, when Peter Petrelli gets all his powers and becomes epic hero guy, you're like, wow, what a cool story that was. Uh, but it really, lo- it lost its way in no small part because of the writer's strike, if you remember back at that time. I do. Um, but, um, oh, I got a great tip from, uh, Michael Marshall Smith, uh, got involved with the thread. MMS. Um, one of my a great author. If you have never read Only Forward, go and read Only Forward. It is one of the great, great novels. And Spares as well. And Spares, yes. Um, uh, he mentioned a Belgian show called Hotel Beau Sejour. Uh, S-E-J-O-U-R. I'm sure it's on some streaming services. I looked it up. Sounds great. It is about somebody who essentially wakes up and discovers that they there's a dead body in their house and then they realise that it is their dead body and they are now a ghost and then they find some people who can see them and it's it's like it's got all those kind of Scandi-noir vibes except it has this supernatural element of the person themselves is trying to investigate who murdered them. That is wild. That, yeah, I, and I, it was an intentional one-shot uh, series. I will watch that. Um, if you can indulge me going back to 2008, Middleman. Ooh. Now, it is based on some graphic novels, but it is basically about a hero, uh, a group of heroes who save the world. They don't know why they're doing it. They don't know why they're being put on these missions. They're just the middlemen. They're just the ones who go and get it done. It's great. Nice. Natalie Morales, first thing I ever saw her in. She's fantastic in it. Oh, that is great. Um, someone mentioned Good Omens from this year, saying, you know, and again, I mm. guess it fits that bill as well, where it is, you know, it's a novel that has been turned and it's very much a one-off novel. Therefore, it's like, please don't try to invent a second series. Yeah, God, <laughs> please don't do that to us. No, please don't. 
Um, someone mentioned Westworld again. I think doing the less pretend it was just season one. <laughs> Look at um, but oh, oh yeah, you go ahead. It is an odd Jeremy Renner vehicle from many many years ago. It's called The Unusuals, and it is a cop drama, ostensibly a um uh, comedy, but they actually kind of based it around the idea of trying to do mash but for cops. So there are actually some very serious bits and pieces thrown into it. And believe it or not, it was created by Noah Hawley. Wow. Yes. So Fargo, Legion, apparently a little bit of Bones as well, but The Unusuals. So one season only. I really loved it. It was unbelievably cruelly cut off. You definitely are left wanting a hell of a lot more. I want to find that now. Yeah. Um, The other really big one that got mentioned a few times... Freaks and Geeks. Oh, of course. Of course there was only one season. Oh, my Lord. And I kept thinking it was more than one, but it was the old sort of, you know, American long, like 18 episodes are in it. So it feels like there's a lot of it, but it was just one season. Um, and then the one last thing that uh, is definitely what the BBC is very, very good at is leaning more into the idea that they let creators create one-shot series. And so somebody brought up what I called the the call of the day, which was State of Play, the great series about um, a team. Uh, it's like a it was a newsroom, and they're sort of cracking this whole sort of weird little government conspiracy thing that was going on. Um, what's his name? Sims. Um he played the master in recent Doctor Who. Oh, stuff. oh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, oh, John God. Sims. Maybe? Yeah, you've got me anyway. stuck on the um the remake because because there was a, an American movie done of it as yeah. well, wasn't there? Yeah, and it's like American movie. Yep, whatever. The the six part original BBC was great, which also then reminded me that Bodyguard this year, um, which starred one of the guys from uh one of the guys who was in Game of Thrones, um and uh. I don't think <laughs> I watched an awesome British actress. But anyway, it was another great six-part British uh, BBC. And again, I think that's, that is one of those things that the BBC does so well is to say, we don't need to make another series. If everybody loves that, now let's commission those creators to create another beautiful standalone six-part drama or something like that. Yeah, so state of play. I've just looked it up now. David Morrissey, John Sim, Kelly McDonald, Bill Nye, James McAvoy, and Philip Glenister. What a cast. What yeah. an absolutely amazing cast. That was one at the time that was a series that I remember buying it on DVD because it was one of those series where I just went, I really do want to be able to watch this again. And this was pre-streaming at the time. So it was just like, I well, I'm not going to be able to see it again anytime soon because they're not probably going to air it ever again. <laughs> that is so depressingly true. Sadly, there are just so many great things where you're like, I don't even know where to go and find it. Just while we're talking Netflix films and something that you couldn't not have found or streaming media more correctly, have you watched Six Underground yet? No, I haven't. Now, it is a Michael Bay film done for Netflix. It's a remarkable cast. Six Underground. That's the one I I think I saw, um, what's his name? Ryan Reynolds um, doing some red carpet thing for it. Yes. Now, it is out. I watched it the other weekend while wildly hungover, and it just struck me that between... Martin Scorsese doing a Netflix film, Michael Bay doing a Netflix film, they are obviously coming from different spectrums of the directorial world, but they are both people that we associate with big studio releases. You know, love or hate Michael Bay, his stuff is normally a spectacle. People go and see it. People talk about it. They're on the big screen. Martin Scorsese, same thing. 
it is really interesting to get two directors like that working for Netflix, doing original content, because it's not watching their work the way they think you are going to watch their work or way, the way we traditionally have. I mean, Martin Scorsese has not made films designed to be paused while you go and do something or or to be watched on a tablet while you sit on the toilet because you just had to get up from the couch. You know, and the same thing with Michael Bay. His films are loud, noisy. They're supposed to be experienced, you know, with THX rocking your eardrums. Yeah. And yet I just watched it hungover. I got up at one point and literally was in the kitchen for about eight minutes doing something just with it still playing. (laughs) And when I got back, I didn't feel like I'd missed a single thing of consequence. But... Is I mean, is is that just a factor of the Michael Bay experience? I don't know. Like, if you're not visually mesmerized, uh, <laughs> then you might sort of realize not much is happening in the, in the movie. But like, like, it's just really interesting to me because even when I've watched like you know Michael Bay films, usually again while hungover, you kind of in a bit glued. Like some of it's yeah. just as is this really the Teenage Mutant Turtles? Am I genuinely watching this? Can it be as bad as I thought it was? <laughs> It was interesting to me that the first one I think he's done for one of the big streaming services is maybe his first film that's forgettable rather than enjoyable or detestable. Ooh, yeah, that's, I mean, look, that's an interesting point. And and you sort of partly wonder, did he have the same kind of budget um, attached to this film as he would have if it's the whole, it's just going into cinemas, therefore it's going to make X dollars? Um because as much as Netflix is splashing a lot of cash on these sorts of things, is that necessarily going to be, you know, um, we're expecting $500 million in the opening weekend kind of dollars? There is budget here. Just trust me, like it opens with a car chase scene around Italy so extensive and so long that as one reviewer said, it could be nine different chase scenes and you wouldn't oh, wow. know. It just goes on for that long. Okay. Yeah, it wow. ends with a fight on a boat involving electromagnets, which could have been, in a less forgettable film, some amazing set pieces. Yeah. They could have and- rivaled they could have rivaled the hallway fight in Inception if it had been done properly. Wow. Okay, yeah, that well, yeah, that's epic. Wow. Um and look, you also made me think of the new Noel Baumbach film, um, Marriage Story. Um, I only know the memes. Sorry, I haven't got around to watching it yet. I only know the memes. Um, But, you know, like, that is such an, you know, a traditional art house indie cinema film that you would have to go to the Dendi to see or something like that, you know, with Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, like everything about it is completely about sort of that sort of cinematic idea that it's not made for your casual couch audience. You know, you might catch it on something later because you didn't get to see it at the cinema. Um, but I think it is on, you know, the Golden Globes awards list. Um, uh, yeah, I think it might end up probably, you know, it could end up having more nominations than, you know, the Irishman might get for Scorsese. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're right that a lot of this, um, you know, award fodder is coming to streaming first. I mean, technically they put it in a cinema in X number of cities for X number of days in order to make sure it qualifies for awards uh, contention. But, yeah, I, it is a really interesting time for this stuff. And particularly, um, you know, like I think The Irishman, I think I checked 
the runtime and sort of went, yeah, I do not have time for this anytime soon. Um, it's, you know, a three and X number of minutes, you know, hours epic. Um, but I'm keen, you know, it, but it's just that thing of suddenly going, again, I guess when we've now been trained by all of these amazing TV shows in this sort of past decade, um, you know, that it's like I can have these nicely contained hour parcels of magic, even if I'm binging it, I know that there is going to be a right time to take my bathroom break or there's going to be a right time to go and fix dessert, you know, whatever it might be, instead of this idea of sort of pausing the three-and-a-half-hour movie um, because I just have to run and do something else. But it's interesting. You said you didn't have time, but you did have time to watch Avengers Endgame, and that was three hours and two minutes. I had time to go and see that in the cinema. And what I think I'm trying to get here very elliptically and very weirdly is that we have changed the audience experience and the audience expectation, and I don't think it's coming back. Now, I can't say whether that's a good thing or not, I guess I'm old enough that I don't think it's a good thing that we consume media in a forgettable way, in a half-assed way. But it has happened, and we just need to get on board. And I think this commitment to you can only win certain awards if you've been in the cinema is a little bit of pomposity that maybe needs to go. 100%. Yeah, that it is such a technicality and, you know, when we think back to, I know, sort of, it, you know, it was earlier in in the in this podcast when, uh, you know, in an earlier episode uh, when we originally had that whole discussion about Scorsese and you know people kind of having this fight over whether you know sort of you know the Marvel movies are real movies and all that sort of stuff, it's like, well, here we are with Scorsese releasing his latest epic directly to to Netflix and that. He clearly doesn't have, you know, he's not hiding from the fact that streaming services are the place where people are providing sophisticated entertainment to anybody who, you know, is paying their $10 a month subscription or $15, whatever it might be. Um, so we have completely transformed what it means to provide top shelf entertainment to an audience. And yeah, it is. It is just entirely a hangover of this industry that they continue to say it's got to got to go to a theater first, or otherwise it doesn't count as a true movie. You know, one thing when it was Hallmark direct to television movies, <laughs> you know, on weird channels, yeah, you know, back in the day, or sci-fi, you know, with Sharknado. I mean, that was kind of some of the first event television movies that we remember talking about, sort of at once upon a time. Um, but now we have true event experiences coming straight to Netflix. Well, I'm on board with it for the most part. I I just wish we could find a way to force people to sit and watch the whole way through without <laughs> checking their phone. That's my yes. big deal. So so people need to you remember all those there's a lot of people who probably have a TV that has one of those Skype cameras built in that's that don't work anymore. Fabulous. They can just be turned to making sure that people do not leave their seat. And um, I guess it takes money off their social credit score if they get up and go to the bathroom. Oh, thank you. New episode of Black Mirror. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Jay, only a little bit left of uh, what is probably going to be our final podcast of the year, sadly. We can't not do a best of. Everyone does a best of. Do you want to do a best of? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. Um, look, I think we have, we've talked a lot about TV and um, movies a little bit there. You mentioned Avengers Endgame, and I'm going to say that was definitely my favourite movie of the year. 
but almost in that sense that it wrapped up a decade of amazing Marvel entertainment. And it really, I felt like it struck all the chords. I wanted to, to hit that. I really sort of, I felt like we got the payoff of their effort to build this cinematic universe. And so for me, that was definitely one of the best in cinema experiences that I've had in a very long time. Yeah, look, I wasn't as enamoured as you. I think it was trying to hit um, uh, emotional notes that I wasn't sure it had deserved. I'm going to say I'm going to give it to – look, I'm going to keep it to genre for the most part because also I didn't really – I'm just realising now how few movies I went and saw in the cinema this year. <laughs> um uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. That was fabulous. That was really good. I I enjoyed it. It had everything I was looking for. But Spider-Man, as those movies, it's got a lot of heart to it. And that's what I've really appreciated. And even though they were big set pieces at times, it feels like a smaller film in a good way. It feels like a film about a teenage boy. And I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. And look, that's a really good point because, and like Tom Holland has just been magical as Spider-Man. So good. When there were all these, all these fights with, with Sony versus Marvel earlier in the year and whether or not he'd be back as Spider-Man in the universe. And now they've thankfully sorted that out because that was something where you're like, he is, he brings, you're right, such heart as well. He's such a sort of an authentic performer in that role. Um, also worth mentioning that I'm like, the, before the year is over, we will have had the opportunity, apart from Star Wars. Look, I'm really excited, but I am not expecting it to be my movie of the year. Um, but Jojo Rabbit is going to mm. hit cinemas just after Christmas, and I'm really excited for that movie. So, you know, that might jump in and steal it. And Knives Out is in cinemas right now. I'm hearing great things. I just haven't had a chance to go and catch it. So they're the sort of the two, uh, you know, asterisk thought bubbles that (laughs) lie over my own choices. Um, I also just wanted to point to the fact that in Best TV, we've had a number of um, you know, end of decade, end of series type things. Cause I think Silicon Valley has just finished forever. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Robot has now finished forever. Both of which have been such a, like a brilliant, um, defining sort of show of this, you know, past five, six years, um, really played with some concepts that have really aligned with what's been going on in the world in different ways. Um, so I loved both of those shows so much and I haven't had a chance to watch Chernobyl, um, in terms of the other really big, you know, winningest shows of all the award season things uh, this year in the States. But I'm super keen to catch that over my holidays. I need to see that as well. I've got to admit, it just felt like it might be a little oppressive and that is a good thing. I just, I, I have definitely picked up TV and uh, movies as the media I use to switch off a little. And I don't think Chernobyl is something you can switch off with. So I've got to get back onto that. You know what's interesting is that uh, the TV show that has made neither of our kind of best of year lists or anyone's, as far as I can tell, uh, barely been acknowledged, Game of Thrones being fully wrapped up. Yeah. Look, it, it didn't end the way people wanted it to end, right? And I, um, you know, I've heard a great discussion about the fact that, you know, when so many of these people got so upset about the final season, um, the fact that the reason that they're upset is because, you know, the, the creators of that show delivered us such a good show for the first seven seasons. Like it was a powerful show, really exciting, really ambitious. You know, they absolutely smashed that whole idea of even what, you know, how epic 
the production values of a TV show can be. Like it was Lord of the Rings on television, you know, which was just crazy. Um, but I think with that like year and a half, almost two years between seven and eight, and then the fact that eight, I think it was such a like most episodes had a lot of sitting around and then there were sort of two, you know, epic set piece episodes. It it really didn't feel like it played out as well as as we all would have hoped. Though, you know, the the great moment in the first big battle in um Winterfell, uh and you know, the conclusion to that battle and the conclusion to the Night King, um, that was a pretty epic moment that I, you know, will remember for a long time actually watching that, you know, sitting on the couch and just seeing it sort of play out and having that genuine yes <laughs> kind of moment. Um, so, yeah, but as a series, I'm like, yeah, that's that's not really going to top any lists this year. Well, I haven't watched it past um, season two, and I think I was only about three episodes into season two and I stopped watching it, and I vowed never to read another one of the books. So I think I'm just done on that one. I might talk about games instead because I played yeah. a lot of good games this year. Most of them from years before this year, it has to be said. I went back and replayed a whole bunch of games and really, really enjoyed it. But massive shout out to Control and Outer Worlds, two games I absolutely loved. Outer Worlds scratched every RPG itch I had, really enjoyed it, still playing it, still having fun with it. Control was clever as hell. It was batshit weird in its own way. I loved every second of it. They were just Great single-player experiences both times. Very happy with what I got to play this year. And look, I I think you're right at the whole single-player experience thing that we've had, hopefully, you know, the quality of these games that we've seen this year. Um, in many respects, I wish Control had won your know, best game at uh, the Game Awards uh, last week. Um, a Sekiro, uh, won, uh, the best game. Uh, it's kind of in that, you know, genre of super hard games <laughs> that I just never play because <laughs> yeah. they're way too hard. Um, Soulsborne games. Um, but, um, yeah, like we've had such a good resurgence in some of these single player experiences that I think it's really exciting that companies have remembered that, you know, it, that there is an audience. There's willing to spend money, you know, for these games if they can make good single player experiences. Um, the other one I haven't played yet that really jumps out for me, um, that I've seen heaps of people saying it was oh, their I game. Know of what the year you're is Disco Museum. Yes, I want to play yeah. that so bad. And I like again, I love that it's not exactly a genre game. It's like a detective story, um, but it is that sort of RPG experience. Um but yeah, giving it this whole detective story sort of style um, really excites me because I really do spend the vast majority of my time in in genre games, um, and I love that so many people have been excited by this. So I'm definitely going to fit this in over my holidays as well. But in the family environment, I have to give a shout out to the fact that Super Smash Brothers Ultimate on Nintendo Switch <laughs> is actually brilliant. And you know what? I spend a lot of my time just sort of watching. Um, you know, my son play, he's super into it. You know, he entered his first little esports tournament for it, uh, while he was down at PAX. Um, and we have started to play as like a four player thing. Sal sort of said, you know what? Yep. I'm going to spend some time, you know, get him to teach me. We'll all play a bit. Um, and so I joined in as well. And 
I'm usually not good at those games, and I tried a bunch of different characters, and I've actually discovered I can play Mr. Game & Watch really, really well. That is Which really also cool. just fits with my my brain loving <laughs> that old, you know, I had a bunch of Game & Watches, the various poses and his moves come from all these different Game & Watch games. Um, and so I just love to death that I'm playing this 2D Game and watch guy <laughs> jumping around the board and that I've managed to work out that his play style suits my crappy button mashing style. Though, you know, like I, I get him in a way that means I stop just mashing buttons and have started to try to use his moves in a genuine sense. Um, so that is worth a nod. And the other one, look, I live in my Blizzard launcher so much. So I still play a lot of World of Warcraft and a lot of Diablo. Um, but I just want to give a nod to the fact that I think Hearthstone um, now, what in its, I think, sixth year, something like that, that it has actually probably had its best year yet because there was a lot of tension last year that uh, Ben Brode left, that the leadership was changing. What's that going to mean? Um, this year they have been so responsive and have kept making cool changes to the game that has kept the game really fresh, both in a competitive sense and in just a casual player sense. So while they do three main drops of card sets through the year, a really clever thing they've done this year is held special events in between those drops where they have done things like brought back old cards from yeah you know, that have been moved into what they call wild, um, brought them back, literally given everybody a copy of them to just play with. For, and that includes some legendaries. It's like, here, you now have that in your collection. What kind of a cool new deck are you going to make based on the fact that you now have access to these? So there's all these kinds of cool things they've been doing. They did like a Rise of the Mix kind of special event where they buffed just a whole bunch of mech cards so huh. that suddenly mech decks were just going to be better for a while. You know, and all these kinds of things that right at the time in each set that would normally mean the game gets a bit stale, they're like, here, let's shake up the rules a little bit. What are you going to do now? And, it, you know, it's such a good way of instead of trying to say, oh, well, we need to release new cards, they're like, no, Let's stick to three sets, but let's shake up the rules a little bit in between times. Um, so they've done a brilliant job and it makes it, you know, it's just really impressive for that style of game to have found its feet in that way. Look, I know how much you love that game. So that makes me really happy. I want to give a shout out to what I think was the most important news story of the year. It's Cybertruck because I think, <laughs> I think Cybertruck is when we finally acknowledge something we've all been guilty of it's been a dirty little secret for a while but it is when we acknowledged we will let billionaires get away with any old dumb shit simply because <laughs> they are billionaires and we think somehow they're better than us capitalism was a bad idea so is Cybertruck. it is my 2019 lasting and abiding memory and befitting of of your your memory um I, have you seen Armando Iannucci's new TV series trailers that are starting to emerge? I have seen them. Don't they um, look amazing? What's it called again? Um, Avenue. Yeah. Avenue 5. Avenue 5. Yeah. Um, which features essentially a not a totally not Elon Musk um, space entrepreneur uh, played by Josh Gad. Uh, and, yeah, it just... It feels like it is going to be the next show for our times, given that the 2020s <laughs> is going to start to actually have some space tourism um, taking place in it. So uh, you're right. Cybertruck, uh, well, for, yeah, that might be we look back and go, that really was, that was the red letter date when uh, everything changed and we and we realized that we were going to let these people just do whatever they want. It's a wonderful uh, world. 
I my quick rundown was, you know, China has done a lot of flexing on global uh technology and culture and video games, um, trying to, you know, sort of uh, force other people to make sure that they set the rules for everybody according to their, uh, you know, their preferred mode of thinking about how the world should work. And that's been dangerous in various ways and will continue to play out in future years, no doubt. Um, And then just the WeWork implosion and the TikTok explosion. Two very, very big things that have taken place this year. Um, uh, TikTok, I, one thing I love, I, I think I linked it up in last week's um, Biteside newsletter, and that was looking at the fact that someone did a really good analysis earlier this year of of the clever thing that TikTok has done that is completely different to other social networks, and that's the fact that it doesn't care who your wider, you know, who your friend network is that it is presenting just cool things and it's using its own AI system to decide what you want to see more of um, in a way that, yeah, just completely doesn't worry about your your network in a traditional sense like all other networks. So that's been really cool. That is actually really, really cool. It has been a weird year. This has been a fun year to kick off a podcast. I've had a great deal of enjoyment doing this with you over the last couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Yeah, cheers, mate. You take care. And to all the listeners, have a wonderful uh, and safe holidays. And hopefully we're all here again at the start of 2020 to talk some more Biteside. We should be keeping in touch with us on social media. You can find me on Twitter at, at Dr. Nick. That is D-R underscore N-I-C. I am at Seamus, S-E-A-M-U-S. Biteside is at Biteside. Uh, and we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram at The Biteside. We're on Facebook at Biteside. And you can email ask at biteside.com. I'm standing here making like uh, a traffic director arms while I'm saying these words. Clearly, you can hear it while I do that. That's I right. can hear it. Have a safe break, everyone. We'll see you next year.